Chapter 4 Et tu, Brute? I am the true spirit of war, General. I am the goddess of bloodshed, of sacrifice, of the slaughter of innocence. I am invoked when men ravage, pillage and burn. I am the smoke that rises from the cinders of kingdoms, charred by hubris. I am summoned when mothers cry out, sons die, and when daughters are stolen. I have heard it all, General. I have heard it all since the fall of Troy. Throughout the story, I have talked of Helen as the face that launched a thousand ships. She has been the catalyst for a war that became legend, and a legend that became an epic. The Trojan War is an event that shook Greece to its core, and its story is unique in that mortality and immortality fought side by side. The gods participated equally in this war, and it is one of the few instances where they did not rely on heroes and mortals to fight their battles for them. At least, not completely. All of this has been epic foreshadowing on my part, but finally we begin the climactic end of the story. By the end of this chapter, the two armies are gathered across the open plains that flow into the Aegean Sea, surrounding Troy. But right now, we're still in Sparta. More accurately, on a ship sailing fast across the crystal clear waters, headed impatiently eastwards towards Anatolia. Standing beneath its full sails painted with the face of Aphrodite, wait Paris, the Prince of Troy, and Helen, the most beautiful woman on earth. The Trojans, led by Crown Prince Hector and his younger brother Paris, had arrived on Spartan shores as part of a diplomatic delegation to meet its king, Helen's husband, Menelaus. But timing is a fabulous thing, for just as the ship was sighted in Sparta, Menelaus' chariot sped out its gates headed towards his own ship, to be on its way to Crete, to attend the funeral of his uncle. The Trojans were thus received by the queen, the beautiful Helen. It is sometimes said that the first time she laid eyes on the younger prince of Troy, Helen was struck in the heart by the arrow of Eros. Eros? who is the Greek god of romantic love, though you may have heard of him by another name, Cupid. Banish from your mind the image of a cherub in diapers and adorable little wings. That's the Christianized image of this pagan god. Eros is the son of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and the reason for all of this mess, and Ares, the god of war. Eros is the perfectly distilled reality of romance. He is powerful love and unstoppable war, and his arrows are things to be terrified of, for love untamed is a terrible madness. So it was that when Menelaus returned home, he found a cold hearth and an empty bed. He was enraged, and rightfully so. Within a few short hours, he knew what had happened, and by the end of the day, he himself was on the fastest ship sailing towards the coast of Asia. I mean, with barely a head start to speak of, how far could the Trojan thieves have gone? Turns out, pretty far. Because Helen and Paris had had adventures of their own. They did end up in Troy eventually, but they were forced to take some detours. Because first, they ended up in Egypt. Yes, you heard that right, Egypt. With deserts and pyramids and pharaohs and all that fabulousness. Who did this? Well, remember that golden apple Paris gave to Aphrodite? 
yeah, Hera was not pleased with how that turned out. So she did this thing where she sent a huge storm and blew the ship southwards. Like very southwards. Like all the way to Africa and down the Nile southwards. All the way to Egypt. In one version, Helen stayed hidden in Egypt until the end of the war, and the gods fashioned her a lookalike from clouds who went with Paris instead. If that turn of events sounds a little familiar, look up Sita and Agni in the Ramayana or Sandhya and Shaya. But I digress. So when Menelaus, unhindered by Hera, landed in Troy on a peaceful mission to get his wife back, Paris and Helen hadn't even reached yet. The Trojan ministers told him as much and further added that they were pretty sure their prince and the queen of Sparta were in Egypt. Now, Menelaus found that notion just about as ridiculous as you first did and came to the obvious conclusion that the Trojans were lying sons of har- harpies and resolved to get his wife back by force. So he sailed straight back to Greece and proceeded to unify all of its kings in the largest fleet of ships in the west since the Vikings. He called upon his brother Agamemnon and the armies of Mycenae to gather at his shores. Messengers rode as far as Crete, Phaia, and Ithaca, calling its kings to fulfill the oath of Tyndareus that they had taken ages ago. This was easier said than done, because some kings did not want to send hundreds of soldiers and start a war to get back another man's wife. The king of Cyprus, for example, sent in a shield and clay ships instead of actual soldiers and Odysseus, king of Ithaca, pretended to go crazy. He sowed his fields with salt and began plowing and cultivating it as though a crop. He was outwitted when the kings placed his infant son in front of the plow's path and Odysseus turned aside, unwilling to kill his son, so revealing his sanity and forcing him to join the war. According to Homer, however, Odysseus supported the military campaign from the beginning. Thus, finally, The armies were commanded by Agamemnon, king of Mycenae, and his brother Menelaus, king of Sparta and the affected party, and advised closely by Odysseus, both Ajaxes, and a few other important kings such as Diomedes. All of them had of course heard of the prince of fire, demigod extraordinaire, our boy, Achilles, and they wanted him on their side. When he didn't show up at Aulis, where the fleet was assembled, Menelaus and Odysseus went looking for him. Achilles actually proved to be quite difficult to find. He was not in fire, nor on Mount Pelion studying with the centaur Chiron. No one knew where he was or what he was doing. Here is where Odysseus once again proves his worth. Through a few well-placed bribes and some tactful spying, he found out that the goddess Thetis, Achilles' mother, had hidden him in Skyros, either as a sister or handmaiden of the princess Didamia. The reason for this was a prophecy. Yes, another one. You will see that that becomes quite a pattern when it comes to Achilles. According to the prophecy, the life of this demigod could go two ways. He could live a long, simple life peacefully, but in complete obscurity, or live gloriously and change the world, but die young. The choice would be his. Thetis knew that Achilles' father would force upon him the latter. She was a goddess herself, remember? and so she knew that a war of cataclysmic proportions threatened just beyond the horizon. She just wanted her son to live and to be free. Therefore, she forced upon him the former. In the dead of the night, she spirited him away to Skyros and under threat of divine retribution, forced its king to hide him. But human greed opens doors that even the gods have forced shut. 
So it was that Odysseus and Menelaus arrived in Skyros, asking the king to hand over Achilles from wherever he was hidden. The king, whose name was Lycomedes, being a good, God-fearing man, denied everything, and it all seemed to blow over. Until, of course, it didn't. As the guests relaxed in an atrium one evening, watching the sun set beyond the cliffs that bordered the kingdom, the princess Didamia came forward with her handmaidens to entertain them. Midway through a truly enchanting performance, horns began to blow, signaling the entrance of an enemy. Odysseus and Menelaus tossed off their cloaks and stood battle-ready, eyes searching the crowd. All the girls, on the other hand, being trained only in the art of dancing and looking pretty, took a more logical course of action and proceeded to run every which way, screaming very, very loudly. All of them, except one, who yanked a sword from one of the guards and jumped in front of the princess. When no attack came, for this was another ploy on the part of Odysseus, Achilles was revealed. He had lived in Skyros under the guise of a woman and had been named Pyra on account of his fiery red hair. Thus found, Achilles was then convinced to join in the war efforts. He arrived at Aulis at the head of a fleet of ships and joined as the youngest commander of the Greek forces, somewhere around 15 years old. Let me now point out a few things about this previous story. Firstly, it is not Homeric in origin. The episode of Achilles in Skyros was made famous in the Achilid, written by the Roman poet Statius. Second and more importantly, Achilles and Didamia have a son, named Neotelemus, also known as Pyrrhus, for the red hair he inherited from his father. This character becomes kind of important later on. Now, you might be asking, But you just spent an awful long time in the previous chapter talking about Achilles' non-heterosexuality and calling Patrocles your OTP, but now he has a son? Why did you lie to us, Pranav? Why? Why? Well, sexuality is complicated, and stories have a hundred different versions. As for Patroclus, I don't know where he was during all of this. I like the version told in the Song of Achilles, which is not a thousand-year-old classic, but a recent masterpiece where he hunts for Achilles far and wide and finally finds him, just as the kings do, honors his decision to fight, and joins him to stay forever by his side. I like sappy plots, so sue me. Once the kings procured their last commander, the sizable fleet finally set sail. Before they did so, obviously, they had a priest by name of Kalchas. Remember that name, you'll come to hate it. Pray to Apollo, the sun god and god of prophecies. The god sent back an omen involving a snake that ate nine sparrows and then turned into stone, which the priest obviously interpreted to mean that the Greeks would win the war on its tenth year because, duh, logic. The fleet then finally headed for Troy, but for some reason they got lost. They accidentally landed in Mysia, where Achilles wounded some king, blah blah blah, that he wounded shall heal, blah blah blah. A huge storm happened and the fleet scattered completely. Wow. Amazing. Attempt number dos. Eight years later. The fleet assembled once again at Aulis. This time, the winds just completely died. The ships sat quiet upon the harbour. On waters so still, they looked like a painting. At this point, I would have taken it as a sign from the universe and turned back, but the Greeks did not. 
Their fleet of ships, a thousand strong, sat quietly, and the soldiers grew more restless. The priest Kalkhas prayed to the gods some more, and somehow did use that the goddess Artemis, sister to Apollo, goddess of the maidens and the moon, who hunted the beasts of yore to the ends of the earth, had been offended by something Agamemnon had done. Therefore, she held the winds at her heel. All of this seems pretty usual, pretty on brand. But what follows is truly one of the most twisted tales I have ever read. Listen on, for we are almost done. On hearing what the priest proclaimed, the kings were enraged. For Agamemnon, after all, had been one of the kings who had forced them here, and now not only would they not get to live the glory of war because of some stupid thing their commander said about being a better hunter than the actual goddess of the hunt, but they would also not get to return home because rowing ships of that size continuously was just not viable. Agamemnon was seized by terror. His armies were collapsing before his eyes, and the spears had not even drawn first blood yet. He begged Kalkhas for a solution, any solution, and Kalkhas dutifully obliged. He claimed that the insult of the maiden goddess could only be soothed by sacrifice. Agamemnon was immensely thankful. What were a few dozen sheep when the entire fleet hung in balance? He immediately ordered fifty of the best cattle to be brought up to the sacrificial altar at the peak. I was not finished, my liege, Kalkhas interrupted. The offense to the goddess of maidenhood can only be soothed by the sacrifice of maidenhood. Purity has a power unlike any other in the world. The sacrifice of a maiden would definitely soothe the rage of an angered god. And if that maiden were to be of royal blood... Well, the goddess could hardly ignore the sacrifice of the princess of the line of Atreus. Now, could she? The princess of whom Kalkha spoke was Iphigenia, a beautiful, demure girl with doe-like eyes and a warm, dimpled smile. She laughed quickly and often and could always be found in the palace gardens, frolicking amongst the flowers. She sat at her mother's knee and learned to knit and sew, she heard stories of the brave heroes, of Heracles who defeated the dreaded Hydra, and Perseus who used the head of the vile Medusa to rescue the beautiful Andromeda, a princess like her. In her young mind, she had already seen her prince, seated atop a mighty steed rushing to rescue her that they may live happily ever after. Her mother took her through the throne room and told her stories of the brave king who had stolen her heart at Sparta just as her, his brother had stolen her sister's. The queen took her atop the turrets and pointed eastwards across the seas, to where her father and uncle led all of Greece to rescue her aunt in the quest of a lifetime. That queen was Clytemnestra, wife of Agamemnon, and Iphigenia was his fourteen-year-old daughter. Some time later, a message arrived at the palace of Mycenae. It bore an invitation to the queen Clytemnestra and her daughter Iphigenia to set sail at once to Aulis, where the hero Achilles waited for the princess, for they were to be married. The little princess was elated. She had found her prince in shining armor. Not only was he a fearsome warrior, he also had divine blood that traced its way back to the earliest deities. And he looked the part. Inhuman strength resided within his corded muscles. 
His eyes glowed as sunbeams dancing upon a forest stream, and his voice had the cadence of the deep, deep seas. How will I know him? asked the maiden princess. I have heard he is tall and swift as a horse. His hair is as red as the setting sun. He is half god, my child. You will know him the moment you see him. Perhaps the story would not have ended in tragedy had Agamemnon or Menelaus given in to their conscience. But a fire had flared in their hearts, and that fire was hubris. So the innocent princess landed upon the fine sand beaches of the small island and the soldiers parted in silence, creating a path up to the peak where she believed her prince waited to receive her. It was her own father who did it. Brought the blade down, I mean. Achilles may have made a few feeble attempts at stopping him, but looking at the frenzy the troops had whipped themselves into decided against it. And as the large, hopeful eyes of the princess turned glassy, and as her blood watered the altar and seeped slowly down, as the brightness and innocence of her life faded from existence, the winds began to blow. And what winds they were. Had the sails been unfurled, the ships would have made it to Troy in days. The stories paint Iphigenia to be some sort of hero, who would rather die for the greater good if it meant her people would win the war. But she was a 14-year-old girl, who had seen nothing but the walls of the palace and had dreams, hope, infinite hope for her future. And as you will see in the next chapter, Achilles more than had the ability to save Iphigenia. He single-handedly destroys the Trojan army, but he did not, because above all, Achilles is apathetic. He does not care for anyone but Patroclus, for whom he would have ended the world in fire. Children trust their parents, blindly. In Iphigenia's eyes, her father could do no wrong. But betrayal only comes from those you implicitly trust. Parents, if you're listening, children are not yours. You do not own them. They do not exist to serve your purposes for their souls dwell in the house of tomorrow, which you cannot visit, not even in your dreams. Your love is not meant to be conditional. Perhaps Artemis was cruel indeed that she expected a payment of such magnitude for a slight committed. Perhaps she smiled, satisfied, before releasing the wind she had held captive. Or maybe... Maybe she was appalled, terrified at the extent to which humanity would go to do what they think gods want. Maybe all she wanted was an apology from the king who made a mistake. Let me end this with two thoughts. Firstly, Iphigenia was the first casualty in the Trojan War. She was a Greek princess, killed, murdered by her father. She is the reality of war. There is no glory, only suffering. And those who suffer are not those who started the war, or stand anything to gain from it. Secondly, as Romero asks Carmen on the island of lost dreams, do you think God stays in heaven because he lives in fear of what he has created here? On Earth?
Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Bookbenders podcast. If you'd like to hear more, follow me on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can see pictures and depictions on my profile at the Bookbender with eights in place of the Bs on Instagram, where I also post updates of future episodes. If you're interested in reading my original stories and poems, you can find them on Wattpad under the same handle. And until you hear me next, this is Pranav, hoping you have an amazing time.